0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah. Yeah. How about you Ed? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean uh we're not under any uh suddenly haphazardly applied lockdowns here. So uh, I guess that's a positive. Yeah. Um, although we probably we probably could use them, <laughs> considering <laughs> how widely the uh, the COVID has spread here in the US. Uh, but um, no, I'm okay. Uh, in the two weeks since we last spoke, I uh, kind of broke my finger. <laughs> I uh, was holding a perspex jug uh, in my kitchen and I turned around and I was holding it at just the right height and apparently swinging it at just the right speed to slam it against the kitchen counter and uh, got a hairline fracture so I had to go in to uh, urgent care to get it to get it x-rayed and to for them to say okay you know it's, it's a very small fracture you should be all right but the thing about it that um really kind of put things into perspective for me in just how much I how much more left wing I have become in the years since I moved to the US was that about a week later I got the bill through and the bill for that was for me was only like twenty dollars and it's like oh great you know that's not a lot of money to go and see the doctor and get checked out but whenever you get these kind of like bills because they have to break down what the insurance company is is covering you get the complete cost of what you could have paid and it would have been like more than three hundred dollars and whenever i have an experience with the u.s health system like that those are the things that just absolutely set me off because in my mind i can just so clearly see the there but for the grace of godness of it all
2: like
0: i can just think that if I, had, if I wasn't so lucky to have really good healthcare because of my job, if I wasn't lucky enough to still have that job because I could work from home, that I could just see, like, suddenly having to pay $300 because I was a fucking idiot and slammed my hand against my kitchen counter would just be, like, a totally ruinous thing to have happened, particularly, you know, in the, like, two weeks before Christmas. And that just made me so angry for, like, a couple of days. And uh, I thought that was very clarifying for me in terms of like thinking like what what about the u.s health system really makes me mad and it's like it's that it works so well for me yeah and it doesn't work that well for like tens of millions of people it's just such an affront to like the the basic notion of like the worth and value of human life because like i could see so many other people having the exact same thing happen to them thinking maybe i won't go to the doctor Maybe I'll just hope that this is fine. Yeah, it's like that's that should you shouldn't have to make that choice.
1: No, no one should. I mean, I was already pretty far on the left before this. And you <laughs> 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 know how I feel if uh, someone cuts you, we all bleed red.
0: So we'll go into the news for this week. Uh, we'll start with some some good news, some nice news that came today in the midst of you know just the general doom and gloom of the fact that you know the entire of the UK is shutting down which is that Eddie Izzard announced that she is going to use uh, she her pronouns. Uh, Eddie Izzard of course comedian who has been around for the since the the 90s in the UK has always had this persona where she's been very kind of like gender fluid and just used various kind of like terms in the past to describe herself that very much pushed against the notion of the the binary uh, spectrum of gender and in recent years has has been uh, presenting more feminine, and this is kind of the the first time that she has said that she would like to be referred to as uh, she-her, and that she is going to be uh, operating in girl mode for a bit more at the moment. And, you know, that's just uh, a really nice thing, as we were talking about with Elliot Page uh, a few weeks ago. It's always very nice when someone is able to, you know, live... The way that they want to and to live like a, a life that is more true and authentic for them and it's particularly nice when it's someone who is very high profile particularly in England which is um in Britain which you know as we've seen in recent years is like has a such a horrible strain of transphobia throughout its media so for someone like Eddie Izzard who's been kind of a huge public figure for such a long time to do this and to potentially raise awareness about this in in a big way and to start that conversation you would hope that it would you know make some people reconsider some of their horrible views
1: you'd hope wouldn't you i mean mm. turfism in britain is uh, uh still rife and particularly unique in kind of how virulent it is and um mm. i'm so pleased for Eddie. i think it's brilliant and i think she is in a unique position as well in that she has been a public figure for such a long time and has really been gender fluid for a very long time, but maybe not using yeah. those terms necessarily. But everyone was, would just kind of be like, oh, okay, Eddie's got really nice nails. or <laughs> mm. um, e-
0: Eddie's being Eddie.
1: Eddie's being Eddie, exactly. And you'd hope that precisely because she's got this kind of cross-Atlantic and cross-generational appeal...
2: Mm.
1: that it's exactly that that she can provide you know a kind of role model and it's a shame that we still need people to essentially be case studies or examples to point to mm. yeah. but that she's putting herself forward for that I think is really positive positive. and seeing the majority of discourse in support of her and pointing out Quite how ridiculous it is if you are in any way shocked or mean about it <laughs> mm-hmm. is, um, yeah. I, I'm, I hope she comes back to stand up for a bit. I know she's sort of been moving into politics for a while, but um, I, uh, Circle, is still one of my favourite ever stand-up shows, and um, mm. I think it'd be a real shame if uh, she didn't do you know ten minutes here or there in whatever language the Sanjay le, mm. le branch.
0: Uh, and of course to uh, emphasize the local angle, uh, Sheffield uh, University graduate yeah, uh, from the history department.
2: Oh
1: can I I do my clanging um, when I met Eddie Izzard story? Uh, Absolutely. So I was in my, I think I was in my first year actually, so cast your mind way back to, um, it'll either be 2008 or 2009 and Eddie was there as part of a, uh, (laughs) Jack Straw was there, it was a Labour thing, and everyone was clearly there to see her and not Jack Straw. But uh, she came on uh, about 10 minutes late and announced, uh, yes, sorry, we're starting late. Uh, I, I, I was having a poo and everyone <laughs> laughed. And then I managed to find her afterwards. We were just um, passing each other on the concourse and my friend had just bought a bag of Maltesers. So I ran up to her and went, Eddie, do you want a Malteser? She's like, yes, I do. it. yes, thank you. Thank you. Does anyone else want a Malteser? Do you want a Malteser? And uh, she said, you know, how was that? Was that good in there? Did you like that? I was like, well i <laughs> like you <laughs> um, and she was great and very charming to some um 18 year old who'd just run up into her face but you know i offered uh, the lighter way to enjoy chocolate so things could be worse
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll go on to our uh, next story which was the news that warner media are going to be putting all of their theatrical releases onto HBO max last uh, uh, next year uh, in order to kind of you yeah, know lessen the impact of the pandemic and the fact that Movie theatres, even with the the vaccines going out, probably aren't going to be at full capacity for the better part of a year. We talked about this last week or last time on our episode. And that was kind of like the main topic. and At the time that we talked, there hadn't really been that much of a response from various people who work with Warner Brothers, you know, various filmmakers. And since then, there have been quite a few and they have not really been that glowing. I think probably the most notable was Christopher Nolan, who spoke out about it in a statement not long after the news broke and was, you know, as someone who has made pretty much every one of his movies with Warner Brothers, at least going back to Batman Begins, and he may have also made Insomnia with them. I think Insomnia might have been, like, you know, his 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 gateway into it, and he has had this long-running relationship with them. He was very scathing in his quote where he essentially said that, you know, some of Hollywood's biggest... Uh, best directors and biggest stars went to bed thinking they worked for the best studio in Hollywood and woke up working for the worst streaming service which I found to be very a very funny and unexpected line both because you know I've seen a bunch of his movies you not like a writer, um, but also because you know it is very rare to see a director take that kind of a stance against someone who they've worked with for so long mm. and it really clarified how much you know this decision was taken without really taking into account the possible effect it could have on the relationships with the talent that one of have cultivated you know they've got a great stable of directors that enjoy working with them because they are committed they have been committed at least for putting movies out theatrically and giving directors like free reign and not getting too sucked into the whole franchise streaming ip thing that has really taken over hollywood particularly uh because of Disney buying everything up. And yeah, so that's that's very interesting in terms of uh showcasing I think some of the hurdles that this deal is going to or this this move on WarnerMedia's Media's part is gonna have, which is that, you know, it, it works now, but you know, what happens when Denny Villeneuve and Christopher Nolan are like, yeah, we're gonna go work for Universal on the next one because <laughs> they're gonna actually put our movies out
1: yeah remains to be seen doesn't it and funny enough Ed, you mentioning uh, nolan there reminded me of number 1 tenet and the movies fan uh, mr thomas cruise mm. who recently was caught um screaming at crew members for apparently breaking covid restrictions and mm, yeah. uh, film twitter as it is wont to do went aflame with <laughs> oh oh the discourse it was it was thick <laughs> and and fit to bursting uh with with takes and i'm personally someone who's like i don't know i it's a scary time and we're all stressed out but if tom cruise were really that concerned about the health and safety of his crew he could probably use i don't know some of his net worth to make sure they could all just stay home until this is all blown over I don't know whether you have to make a film right now and certainly not shout at people who are under probably more pressure than you are and don't get to uh, go home, probably aren't, you know, are probably being tested, but kind of for your sake rather than their own. I don't know. That was kind of how I felt about it because he is just, it's not a so good look if you're really rich and shout at people, Ed. I, uh...
0: Yeah, I think I I kind of fall in the same sort of category in terms of it, like, I thought, on the, on the one hand, I think it's good that he cares that much about keeping those kind of restrictions and those protocols in place and policing them, because if you are going to make movies at this time, and if you are going to try to make sure that the industry stays afloat, and the, if you if you truly believe the only way to do that is by making movies at this time, then the only way you can do it is if you're operating at the absolute strict level of safety and you know the passion for that sort of thing uh i I applaud but the underlying thing for me is like you shouldn't just you shouldn't be making movies yeah (laughs) like that's that's my my thing with basically everything with with covid is like if if this was the start of the pandemic and people were just trying to get to the grips with it, then sure, fine. Yeah, like you then try and make movies and just keep the protocols. But you know, it's too widespread this at this point. Everyone should just the government should just give people money to not do things for a month. You yeah. know, yeah. to kind of limit contact and just let the the virus kind of like die out as much as it's possible. That's the only way this kind of resolves. Short of you know the the vaccine becoming widely available, which obviously is now on the horizon but you know yeah horizons are pretty far away (laughs) that's the very nature of a horizon you know like you know it's still probably going to be six months or so before most of the people in america have the 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 vaccine so like at this point if you're trying to make a big budget movie you you are better off just not doing it Uh, and you know just because you've put these people in this situation and you're forcing them to work and they're not meeting your standards doesn't mean that you get to scream at them even if the screaming itself out of context was very funny uh, and him talking about being on the phone to every fucking studio every night and things like that made for some good memes speaking of disney as I, I mentioned a moment ago they obviously had their big investor call the other week where they just stood up there and just said a lot of titles that they're working on including like eight new star wars tv series slash movies and all this other stuff that they're working on, the uh, Marvel shows, all this sort of stuff that's going to Disney+. Plus. And, you know, obviously this week we had the finale of The Mandalorian, which reignited the uh, long simmering culture war around The Last Jedi. Because the end, for not going to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but, you know, there was elements of that finale which seemed to refute the essential themes of what The Last Jedi was trying to say about star wars uh, that made it for me the best star wars movie since empire strikes back and for other people made it an affront to god so so obviously there's been a lot of star wars discussion happening and for me It was kind of nice this week to realise just how little I care about Star Wars anymore. (laughs) Like, it's it's been a year since The Rise of Skywalker came out. I went to see that in the cinema. I hated every second of it. I thought it was such a fucking awful soulless movie. It was so, so terrible. And all of these stories about the various things that Disney are working on and, you know, just like people getting into such a lather about The Mandalorian this week, which just made me like, it, it really was like... Is like getting out of like a really bad breakup and realizing that you don't really feel much anymore towards the person. Like, you know, you have a bad relationship and now they don't occupy any of your headspace anymore <laughs> and that's kind of that's kind of how i felt it's like all oh, right there's star wars stuff happening i'm gonna go and do something else i'm not going to engage in this at all and i don't know it was very freeing i gotta say <laughs> it was like like doing 20 hours of like mindfulness training or something i just kind of like <laughs> felt felt so so relieved
1: i tapped out after the last jedi um because i knew that it was just going to be ruined, like all of the mm-hmm. nice, interesting moves that Johnson made and tried to encourage and the kind of, well, let's be honest, more leftist elements of it as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that ending that really excited me, I just thought, well, that's all just going to be dropped. And when this announcement was made, I genuinely thought it was like a prank, Because there was just... It was just so much. Yeah. So many properties. To the point where it gets to that kind of like... Why is everyone more interested in kind of every single character's origin story? Rather Mm. than... I don't know. I mean, I've not seen any of The Mandalorian. But that seems to be doing pretty well. And that is taking kind of Star Wars in a slightly different direction and tone. But I just... I mean who who will still be able to care this much about all of it because surely it's kind of pushing even completists to the brink.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's my big question about it because obviously the Mandalorian does very well for Disney and it was there. Yeah, it was very smart of them to launch their streaming service with it because it's clearly something that really has a, a drawn people in outside of their regular catalog but you know, the problem they had with Star Wars on a cinematic cinematic level is that they produced too much of it too quickly. Mm -hmm. Like, you went in the space of three years from, like, The Force Awakens being one of the biggest movies ever made, this hugely exciting thing, Rogue One being, you know, kind of like this really cool, exciting new addition to the canon, The Last Jedi being a huge hit, despite being divisive, to Solo, a Star Wars movie, being a Star Wars story being, like, the least successful of any of the theatrically released Star Wars movies except for like the Clone Wars movie they put out in like 2007 or whatever and that you know that was because there was just too much of it it stopped being special and it's weird that the lesson that Disney seemed to have taken is not you need to treat Star Wars like it's a special thing because it has such a big place in the culture and that you need to kind of ensure that what you're putting out is good to people just want tons of Star Wars regardless of like how connected they are to the lore regardless of like how much they know who like Asoka ah- is or how who what Rogue Squadron is like it's it kind of seems like they're doubling down in a way that is going to result in like two years time in like seven of the eight series being cancelled because none of them lived up to what the Mandalorian had achieved maybe that's just me being overly optimistic <laughs> just kind of
1: hey I'm 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 open to all optimism there is a, a, a huge vacancy for optimism in this year Ed I don't know if you've noticed so bring it I will, I will take it I will absolutely take it
0: mm. uh, speaking of optimism of course we uh, have one thing to look forward to in 2021 which is Bob Odenkirk going John Wick
2: mm. in uh
0: the movie Nobody, the trailer for which debuted uh, the other week. And uh, I immediately sent to you, because I was just like, I can't quite believe this is a real thing. <laughs> like, obviously, Bob Odenkirk's career has gone in a, a different way because of Breaking Bad and, Break- uh, and Better Call Saul. And he is a good dramatic actor. And it, 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 like everything about it makes sense that you would cast him in that role as, like, a former, like, special ops guy who, like, settles down and has, like, a normal family. But there is just something... About it being Bob Odenkirk. Yeah. That just inherently (laughs) makes it really, really funny and strange.
1: Who is, like, hench as anything. Mm. He's got proper swole. And I like that he's sort of being like, yeah, what if better call Saul and then some? Maybe (laughs) I can do whatever I want now. And I actually Mm. recently rewatched the behind the scenes of With Bob and David And Mm. the thing that always struck me about that was that I was surprised at how he was definitely the one who is like the leader and makes decisions and everyone kind of falls into line and he's the one sort of pushing through. So when this came out, I was like, oh, yeah, okay.
0: (laughs) I think also it's just that weird thing when someone is known for being a sketch performer and when that person has done lots of sketches that are parodies of certain kinds of movies when you see them in one of those kind of movies, like, it's it's kind of hard, there's a certain amount of dissonance to it, which you also see to great effect in Little Women when he shows up and you just start imagining like oh he's saying hello to his little women and now he's going to take a shit on the flag or whatever you know like, <laughs> like you just assume that's the direction he's going to go because that's such a, a huge part of his persona but um i'm, I'm genuinely very looking forward to nobody I, I think it's it's kind of nice that every slightly older guy who was famous in the 90s is getting, <laughs> getting their own chance to uh own motherfuckers which, you know, is, is a fun thing to see. And our final bit of news this week uh, was the sad news that uh, Barbara Windsor passed away. Barbara Windsor, of course, iconic British actress, best known for, certainly for, for me, and I think people of our generation for her work in EastEnders, as Peggy Mitchell, the, the, uh, uh, the Queen Vic, you yeah, know, kind of like a fiery, diminutive barmaid who uh, was always uh, telling people to get out, get out of my pub. But also, you know, has a long standing um, career beyond that, of course, through the carry on films, kind of a sex symbol of British cinema in the 70s. And just like a thoroughly interesting person in her own right outside of the fact that she was, you know, kind of this iconic figure for multiple generations through the various projects that she was involved in.
1: And for anyone in uh, who's not in the UK who's listening to this. Kind of think like Dolly Parton, but instead of country music, it's um, bawdy jokes. Um, Mm. She had the best giggle. I mean, you can't imitate that. And the amazing stories that were coming out about her kind of like supporting like the miners' balls and like their strikes. And I think she also called Michael Gove a really rude word when she was in a play that he was in. Um, So, of course, I'm just always going to support that. And (coughs) she was very upfront about her diagnosis with Alzheimer's and that she retreated from public eye and Mm. um, her husband I think cared for her
0: and her diagnosis with breast cancer as well she was obviously very open about that and they incorporated that into Peggy Mitchell's storyline in EastEnders as well
1: yeah that was actually really incredible in terms of what she managed to do and I think Soap's Overlooked to you know it is really sort of the major genre that grapples with social things and particularly in the uk i mean Mm. it was years ago that eastenders was one of the few non-news current affairs programs that actually tackled brexit and the social effects of it
2: Mm. and uh, and the
1: racism so yeah thanks babs
0: so we're going to the main topic for this week and usually our last episode of the year which this uh, is because obviously it's Christmas is coming up. We want to take a nice little break and uh, you know take whatever kind of rest we can. Uh, usually, uh, the last episode of the year is going to be like a countdown of the the best films of the year. But uh, because there have been that many films and some of them are harder to kind of see now because you know you can't go to the cinema and you have to kind of like track down everything on streaming services. We're kind of pushing that back to January and so we have a little more time to kind of catch up on things. So what we want to do for this is look back on the year and talk about the art more generally that helped us get through 2020 because certainly uh, in my case, you know, like I felt like this year I fell off the treadmill of trying to keep up with everything because, uh, you know, the spigot of new movies, you know, it didn't dry up entirely because obviously stuff was going on to VOD, but because there wasn't that focal point of things hitting movie theaters and that being kind of like the central point for people to see movies and to discuss I didn't feel quite the same pull to kind of keep up with everything so a lot of the stuff I consumed this year and that provided me with kind of comfort was older art and so that was for, for me like if I look back on the pop culture of 2020 it's like agatha christie novels <laughs> you know that that's kind of like what so much of my year was was reading agatha christie novels and trying to detach myself so much from the zeitgeist and instead looking around and saying okay what what of have i been meaning to watch or read or listen to or play for a long time that i just haven't got around to
1: i wish i'd sustained that very feeling ed because at the beginning <clears> of Um, lockdown in the UK which was March the 23rd I believe I definitely felt a kind of oh okay well I guess I'm just gonna catch up with everything and I realized that my executive dysfunction has been through the roof (laughs) turns out a pandemic's gonna do that too yeah so in between kind of trying to work from home and then always feeling kind of half on it was it kind of reminded me of when I was having really bad periods of insomnia where you never Mm. feel awake or asleep but kind of a mix of the two and that's how I felt with my concentration it felt like I was constantly trying to distract myself from the thing you know the awfulness (laughs) um Mm. that's happening and the thing that managed to sort of I mean basically it felt like constantly sort of getting the uh raptors to back off and it's like well the way that you do that is you don't retreat and you don't charge you just kind of stay in place (laughs) so for me it was definitely that kind of I wouldn't even say comfort watching it was more calming Mm -hmm. watching because I feel like comfort watching is like was what we kind of used to do (laughs) because there was normally something quite specific that you needed attending to And you could do it by watching something familiar. Whereas I wasn't getting much comfort and a lot of stuff felt kind of tacky or sentimental. And that was equally really grating. So I've constantly kind of oscillated this year in terms of being like, oh, I desperately need something completely new. Or I just need this same thing that I've watched. So I rewatched an awful lot of stuff instead of really venturing forward, I'd say that I re-watched more than anything. And this is stuff like Sex in the City, 30 Rock, other things not set in New York. (laughs) But it was just that was what I what I could kind of take. It was almost like culturally I was nauseous. And it was and in the same way when, (laughs) when you're nauseous and you're like I know I need to eat. I don't feel like I can. What can I actually stomach? And it's normally things that are very bland, but also kind of with some kind of substance to them. So it was just dry white toast, really. (laughs) (laughs) And for the majority of it. But I'll tell you what did really help. And I'm glad that it's getting the accolades that it truly deserves. I May Destroy You really helped, but not Mm. for its content as much as the content is incredible, it was just that it was on a release schedule Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, in the UK. So I'd be like, oh, it's Monday. There'll be two episodes of I may destroy you. And I would normally Monday morning, like watch those and get to work and just having any sense of external structure at a point where I felt like everything was melting was uh, a delight. So Thank you, Michael Cole, for so many reasons, but in particular for that <laughs> that that release strategy.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah, I think structure was kind of like a nice thing to have over the course of this year. Like recording this show and talking to you once a week, I think psychologically <laughs> was very very helpful to me uh, this year. Like knowing, okay, it's Sunday, we're going to record you know gotta put my notes together gotta kind of like figure out how we're gonna structure this thing and then knowing okay that means it's work tomorrow (laughs) and that that was a kind of structure that I think disappeared elsewhere in my life (laughs) because like particularly during the summer when my hours at work got kind of like a lot longer there was like just that real sense of like Every, every day is Monday every day or whatever. So like every day you kind of felt the same. So I guess like recording the show, I think was a big help this year <laughs> in a major way for me, just like knowing, okay, like that's the one thing I have to do this week that is unrelated to work. Something else that I, I found kind of like really comforting in the sense of creating a sense of connectiveness with other people and a sense of solidarity was uh, listening to podcasts this year, which is, yeah, I've listened to podcasts for years. i probably listened to too many podcasts. But <laughs> this year in particular, I felt a real solidarity because so many of the shows that I've listened to for a long time are shows where people sit together in the same room and have conversations and riff off of each other. So stuff like Comedy Bang Bang, Blank Check, mm-hmm. Griffin and David, The Bodega Boys. And there was something really nice in sort of march april may where you could hear those shows adapting because particularly the bodega boys and blank check you know those guys are all based in new york so obviously the new york in that period of time was particularly hard hit by the pandemic they all had to completely shift their way of making the show and there was something for me that was incredibly Heartening about hearing them adjust to the stuff that I was also having to adjust to just in my daily life of having to switch from working in office to working from home, having to get used to teleconferencing and things like that. Um. And it was really so nice listening to those shows and realising that even though they're operating under the same pressures that all of we are, they were able to adjust, they were able to adapt. Those shows didn't really lose a huge amount in having to shift to this new format and that that for me was like a purer sense of like we're all in this together than any number of like you know well-meaning uh but terrible front-facing celebrity uh imagined sing
1: yeah I mean podcasts were definitely key to me actually trying to get any sort of focus or at work being anywhere near productive and I think mm. I sort of dropped off with music which made me quite sad although I did listen to Fetch the Bolt Cutters um, yeah. by Fiona Apple on repeat um, on sort of walks when that came out and I think it was amazing how she managed to capture so much of what so many of us were feeling
2: mm-hmm.
1: with and again not being sort of purposefully about lockdown or, or quarantine but just she's great she's great it's such an amazing album um Mm -hmm. but yeah podcast wise oh i listened to plenty i think because i missed and realized that that was going to be like my only source of group conversations Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um other than you know zooms and frantically trying to sort of like keep up with people and then finding that pretty overwhelming and I'm just so tired of looking at my own face and I, I just want <laughs> to talk to someone else and only see their face and, and listen to them, my word. Um, but that kind of, and particularly when I was working, you know, I think there's something about podcasts where just the kind of general background of conversation would help me focus in a way that I think mm. I, not that I've ever worked in particularly chatty offices, but it, it did kind of provide that, um, a different kind of, uh, of sound barrier and I found myself kind of using a lot of things as as wallpaper and what you were saying in terms of like lots of people sort of chatting to each other I found YouTube video essays and like really leaning into yeah. the parasocial effect of someone staring mm-hmm. into a camera but that felt like they were looking deep into my eyes and telling me interesting things I lent on that so hard um mm-hmm. I am also so like so grateful that the National Theatre had their live series where they put up recordings their archival recordings of some of their productions and that I'd often have on in the background which I know sort of defeats the point because you should really watch theatre but sometimes that was tricky to just there's something about the soundscape I think that makes you feel like you're in a room with other people. And that was the thing that I was missing. It was the audience reaction, whether that was kind of like it almost, I could almost hear hundreds of people paying attention to the stage or, you know, people laughing in response to something just applause. But I think national theater definitely got me through. And I'm really sad that, you know, they sort of ran out and I understand why they're not necessarily putting um, more up, but, It was an interesting experiment because I guess it also shows, well, you know, National Theatre Live have been broadcasting in cinemas, but what's to stop them kind of doing online streaming? And again, Ed, I'm going to keep banging this drum for why would you not want a bigger audience? Um, Mm -hmm. And why can't that continue in some way, shape or form if people are happy to part with money for it? But The Twelfth Night with Tamsin Grieg was particularly amazing with her as Malvolia and it just had this kind of proper big bombastic theatre production and she was just incredible and it just had uh, so much light and life in it so it was kind of this sort of understanding what I was missing because and I don't want to say that we'd taken it for granted because I don't think we should feel that we had taken anything for granted because it's such a base level of the experience of life to be around other people. Um, Mm. And I think that was what I felt and why I'm really glad that I watched Swiss Army Man for the first time this year, because I think that sense of kind of retreating and then teaching each other what life is like and just the sense of being around people, I don't think is something that we should feel that we took for granted. I think we are all, we all absolutely have a right to it. So it was weird kind of teaching myself and, and figuring out how to supplement myself with that.
0: Yeah, I think thing uh, work, works of well art that have that sense of community really meant a lot to me this year. Um, one of my dots, not to spoil when we talk about our best of the year episodes, but um, best films of the year. But I really responded to David Byrne's American Utopia, the filmed version of his Broadway show, which really reminded me about how much I enjoy live music. I enjoy the feeling of going to see a performance, of being in a crowd and thinking about how much I miss that. It also was a big part of like reigniting just my love of talking heads. I think I've listened to more talking heads this year than I think I have since I first started getting into them when I was like 18, 19 years old and I came to really appreciate the slightly naive, detached quality of a lot of David Byrne's lyrics. You know, like how so much of his writing is kind of describing human experiences in a way that feels kind of like slightly weird and alien and something about being removed from so many of those everyday experiences by being you know in lockdown and quarantine for so long made that perspective feel a lot more meaningful to me as the year wore on uh and also uh, probably explains why um in terms of pure comfort watches of just things i enjoy putting on if i'm if i want to kind of like de-stress whatever like stop making sense has become that for me this year like yeah putting that on just i just put it on last night in fact you know like it's just such an amazing movie that I already loved a lot, but seeing them perform on stage with such joy, and particularly towards the end when they finally show the audience, like that real sense of people gathering in one place for the shared experiences is really beautiful. Uh, and on a similar note, uh, I just watched Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock, the second episode of the Small acts anthology series, and that one was another one which really filled me with kind of like, a real love for, you know, all the people I've ever gone to, like parties that went until early in the morning <laughs> with or, you know, um those kind of like incredibly messy dock Fest parties that I always used to go to after the festival where, you know, it'd be in that terrible Russian bar that's basically just a car park um, in Sheffield, <laughs> which is the name of which escapes me now, but was always like the site the the site of just kind of like really drunken parties and and watching lovers rock really kind of made me long for that in a, in a real way so i feel like those those works of art this year were the ones that really kind of meant something to me anything that, that kind of reminded me of what we've we lost over the last nine months and also you like you mentioned video essays there on youtube um I, I just want to quickly shout out dan olsen and patrick h willems whose work i i've been a fan of dan dan olsen for ages um by thought that several of his videos this year like the contagion visit video that, that you and i yeah. talked about oh, yeah. um in search of a flat earth was just so incredible it's, it's very much the movie the video of his that i keep sharing to people and just being like you really need to see this because it explains a lot about um a, a certain subsection of people in the world who we should probably be very worried about and um, patrick h willems i only discovered this year but i've enjoyed his videos so much i think he's got such a great clear-eyed approach to YouTube criticism and in terms of like trying to understand filmmakers through their entire body of work mm. and doing deep dives in a way that is so antithetical to I think a lot of how people on YouTube approach film criticism and um, the, those are the two that kind of like really stand out to me as, as people were doing like really great work this year and doing the best that they could with the obvious restrictions that everyone has had to live under
1: yeah that contagion one you know this is not an essay this is a raw nerve <laughs> Dan Olson, mm-hmm. I think I mean kudos to anyone who's managed to um I think he just managed to be so articulate
2: about mm-hmm.
1: and I think there's a maxim somewhere that says good art is clear writing about mixed feelings and I think that's what Dan Olsen in particular has absolutely excelled in and I'm a big fan of Patrick Willems as well like you and I were talking about um offline about how much we enjoyed the Kevin Smith kind of retrospective he's done recently and uh the idea of kind of appreciating gateway filmmakers and I think what Patrick Willems manages to do and the power of like a video essay is that there's something about someone talking you through it in a conversational way that the nuance can come across Mm, and that he doesn't kind of write off Kevin Smith whatsoever. He's trying to get to the core of why he sort of wanted to go back to it in the first place, what still kind of holds up. And it, and it feels more like film appreciation to me. And I Mm. think he also manages to do, which, you know, wouldn't necessarily come across in maybe like a written article or I think the amount that he manages to cover in that, kevin smith piece would could also be like a phd you know mm. um so that he is managing to do things so kind of um in such an engaging and entertaining way like they're beautiful pieces of work themselves and i think you know his parents are also hilarious in that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah so i re- and i yeah i think patrick williams is great i watched his uh, kind of austin powers retrospective as well mm. and i think he manages to bring such a in the way that, you know, the sort of dem- it, it, it brings me hope for the democratisation of the internet or at least like the possibilities of what YouTube can bring, because it, it can bring things that are very considered and what are essentially different takes without being like too hot to handle about things. I was like, oh, yeah, I'd never thought of Austin Powers in that way. And neither is he sort of saying this is the only way to see it. He's just like, this is what I've noticed at this point in this time. And he's got that little coconut called Claude, like what's not to like?
0: (laughs) I think it's also really cool in illustrating like how YouTube is this unique format and this unique platform where you couldn't really imagine those kind of video essays being displayed anywhere else, particularly his, because they are like really considered and really well researched and really well written, but they are also like very funny and they're not geared towards an academic kind of sense. They're more about, you know, someone trying to articulate in clear terms, but entertaining terms, like what the creator of the essay feels about Austin Powers or Kenneth Smith or Francis Ford Coppola or Gonzo blockbusters of the last 20 years. And that's the sort of thing where you know because YouTube has no real barrier to entry. Entry anyone can put anything they want on YouTube as long as it's you know not harmful, and anyway, not easily defined as harmful. There's plenty of harmful shit on YouTube, but you know you can put pretty much anything up there and. That there is something quite nice about that that you know someone like Kim can build up a fairly large audience, or Dan Olson, or Paige Bomberguy Guy, or Lindsay Ellis. All these people can build up this audience, doing work that you know would not ever air on television, would be like too populist to really kind of find much space in film festivals or in academic spaces, but you know can find this clearly very large middle ground for people who just like want to watch people talk very. Clearly and articulately and passionately about the art that they consume, and you know, can look at it all with uh, an interesting and interested eye. One of the things I feel like I absolutely have to uh shout out, which was kind of a, a newish experience for me this year, was uh watching stuff on Twitch. Um,
2: yeah,
0: I had occasionally watched some Twitch streams or some live streams of games in the past, particularly, I used to. Uh, religiously watched the uh, polygon um, live streams of PUBG or full squad that used to be something I would regularly watch at work which was really really fun but particularly this year and in the early days of the pandemic uh, I would uh, the um, video game website giantbomb.com started doing all day streams where because all of their editors were working from home they would you know put up streams all day Uh, partly as a way for them to work out the technology of how to do what they do, which is usually kind of like them being based in a studio and streaming and talking together in one place uh, from a a home setting, but also kind of as a way to, you know, help their subscribers and their viewers by giving them kind of like something to take their mind off of things. And as one of those viewers and subscribers, it helped a lot, having, you know, being able to put on uh, a stream of people playing Bloodborne or playing through um Super Mario Galaxy and just having these kind of very funny, entertaining people playing through games and also often kind of like talking through their experiences. Cause again, to go back to the like the podcast thing, they went into lockdown the same week that I went into lockdown. So they were going through all the same sort of dislocation that I was of trying to figure out how you do your job from home, how you make the technological side of things work. And again I felt a great deal of solidarity and camaraderie with them as you know being in the same industry of of seeing them kind of work through the details themselves and trying to come to terms with this sudden shift in their lives and the way they work and they did it very entertainingly and they also you know they did a lot of charity streams they made a lot of money for good causes and I was happy to donate whenever I could to those as well so like there was a real sense again of that sense of we're all in this together for that with those streams that uh, i found to be a tremendous balm to just like the days when i was super duper stressed over everything going on to be able to kind of like spend a little bit of time with uh, with that crew of people
1: absolutely i found it interesting to see how again kind of uh, twitch became um, not just the sort of live platform for gamers, but uh, comedians really took to it as well. So it's interesting mm. for me to see how comedy and, and comedians have adapted to try and get as close to that kind of live, responsive um, experience as possible. Because um, mm. Zoom does—I don't like to feel like I'm on a conference call. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I just want to have uh, a good laugh. So, and and it seems like. Twitch is the platform that's really viable. Like, for example, Limmy, uh, Mm. SRS favourite and um, fellow Glasgow resident, is leaving TV for Twitch, which Mm. kind of makes sense. And I really respect him for that because why constantly try to change yourself to fit the medium that you happen to be on instead of doing what you want to do? And it reminded me of kind of like the difference between video gaiden and consulvania and again games seem to be pushing the screen industries into into new areas because they've sort of developed the programs and the platforms that who knew that we were gonna sort of fall on so hard this year um and it was really great to see more people you know comedians and performers do kind of like live streaming and and the way that they were trying to kind of use that um, recursively to support theatres. So <clears> I saw Daniel Kitson's Dot Dot Dot, which is his latest show this year. And the way that you got a ticket was you you basically bought one from the theatre that you would have gone to see it in. And he broadcast from that theatre and so did a tour around the UK like just him and it's a beautiful show. I don't want to say too much about it because I really hope he releases it again, but it was kind of a a double whammy because I got to see the time that he did it during the tour and then he kind of did a redux of it a few weeks later because he was like, oh no, I finished it now I figured out <laughs> I wasn't quite sure with it and and I've um figured it out now. But all I'll say is it involves a lot of post-its. And it's probably mm-hmm. my favorite piece of art about lockdown, but it was great because, you know, we're also finding just these new models in general, in terms of how do we support arts? Cause we're gonna have to, in terms of arts and culture, they've been so decimated. And the fact that they, over, over years, over decades, and that this is such a kind of crucial tipping point for us to support them. And I've just been in awe of how they've kept going in the ways that they have. Um, with absolutely no help, Ed, or, or little help that comes uh, far too late. I've also found that, I mean, maybe this is a... I've indulged in frauder, is all I'm going to say, Ed. and a couple of the things, that, you know, in terms of models that don't necessarily work specifically well, kind of really big clangers, like, remember Wild Mountain Time, the trailer?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah.
1: uh, and then the twist, which I'm going to leave for everyone to Google as a treat to themselves because when i found mm. out I, I i was howling it's it's serenity levels
0: yeah karen hahn wrote a really funny piece for
1: slate i want to say mm-hmm.
0: where she describes what the twist is it, it, it is quite something
1: oh it's just and you know what it actually made me want to watch the film because <laughs> mm-hmm. i actually want to see how they execute that but the, it was just like oh my god why isn't anyone actually you know, there are there are Irish, there are actually Irish actors, you know, it's not just Damien, Jamie Dornen, <laughs> there are others of Irish actors. Was Sir Ronan not available? And uh yeah, so th- that and then also um SNL at home, like <clears throat> there's the kind of trying to carry on the season but kind of in full quarantine. And uh, I I mean this sounds awful, Ed, but it's true. I'm I'm a totally fallible, imperfect human being. It was kind of great to see what is meant to be, you know, the best, longest running, seemingly uh, undefeatable American topical showcase really struggle, because I think Mm. that just made me feel better to be like, (laughs) oh, everyone's having a rough time. I'm not doing this wrong. It's that this is just difficult. And it's really hard to make anything, particularly something like that, which is, you know, a live experience.
0: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I I have also engaged in a little bit of Sean (laughs) this week. It's been very fun watching the fallout from the release of uh, Cyberpunk 2077, I have to say. Kind of fun to see. Even the people who are probably the best at what they do in the world or among the best of the world, oh, they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle to deal with the uh, the enormity of the situation we're in and with the various pressures of trying to continue on under the, 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 the grinding pressure of capitalism, you know? So... I think, I think it's fine to allow a little bit of shot and Frauder into your diet. <laughs> so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot First Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well. Emily, what are we going to recommend for the listeners this week?
1: A podcast. Speaking of podcasts mm. that we both uh, really lent on, one that I have absolutely loved from this year is Dead Eyes by mm. Connor Ratliff, who is a um, comedian, actor. UCB alumni and this podcast follows him deep diving into one of the most painful moments of his career which was uh 20 years ago now I think um when he was given a tiny speaking part in Band of Brothers was told that he needed to come in and audition again for Tom Hanks and was then told later that he was being let go and the reason was because Tom Hanks said he had dead eyes now as someone who takes things very much to heart (laughs) and finds it difficult to let go i absolutely love the level of detail within which he goes to it becomes this microcosm window portal jumping off point another analogy um for studying the kind of the nature of acting and how there isn't really a boundary between the personal and the professional when you feel you're putting yourself up so much. Um, There are some fascinating guests. The twists and turns that the podcast actually takes is phenomenal. And not just because of when the pandemic hits, because it was kind of written and released um, at the beginning of this year and is kind of in a sort of real time. So to listen to that come in as well was interesting and to see how it actually fit within the story Um, and it's ongoing and I think you know if anyone thinks oh you know it's a bit self-indulgent well it is but that's the point and he manages to catch himself about being you know and and brings in that self-awareness so yeah if you take things personally and I don't think you're a human being if you don't then I cannot recommend dead eyes enough
0: cool I am going to recommend a movie that I watched uh, the other day, kind of as part of this 2020 catch up thing uh, that I've been trying to do, trying to catch up on some of the bigger movies from the year or the more acclaimed movies, which is the Netflix movie Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is the adaptation of the August Wilson play starring Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman in his final role. Uh, I think it's, it's very good. It, Feels very much like an adaptation of a play, but it doesn't feel kind of stilted or stagey. It's just that it, you know, it's a it's a story of the tensions within this band of session musicians and the singer that they are brought into support, played by Viola Davis, and particularly between her and her the the trumpet player played by uh, Chadwick Chadwick Boseman, and you know, it's it's a very kind of intimate, intense story, uh, but. The thing about it that really stands out is are uh, the performances. VL Davis is very, very good uh, as the as the titular Mar Rainey, but Chadwick Boseman is just phenomenal. So incandescent such a firecracker really will make you even sadder uh, about his passing because you know it's just it's a performance that really shows what a talent he was and what we have been denied by his early his early passing. And it's just a really fascinating story about uh, the appropriation and exploitation of black art for white audiences, which the play, uh, which the film uh, kind of like really hammers home, particularly towards its kind of like final act, which is really kind of like compellingly done. And I think it's just really, really good adaptation, really good filmmaking, and fantastic performances. So it's, uh, and it's well worth checking out. So that is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is on Netflix everywhere. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all these places. Rate reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me,
1: and it's goodbye from me.